From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, and yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table at the eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. And then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a deaf man who had, been, who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat, touched his tongue, then looking up to the heavens, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Michael Shermer, a famous skeptic and psychologist, has popularized the insight surrounding what's known as pattern recognition. Now, humans, he suggests, are, are, are pattern recognition machines. With any set of inputs, sight or sound or taste or touch, the human brain is set to identify patterns. Amidst the noise and chaos of everyday life, Humans are, are, are amazingly adept at picking out patterns. I mean, that's, that's why parents in a crowded McDonald's can distinguish the scream of their child amid the screams of a whole herd of children, right? I mean, it's why when you're driving faster than you're supposed to be, and you look in the rearview mirror and you see a silver vehicle with a distinctive grille of Ford Taurus in the rear, rear view mirror, you... you you automatically sort of take your foot off the gas pedal. Babies, for example, at one day old, will focus on edges, 
and stripes. And within a relatively short period of time, they're able to distinguish the face and voice of their parents from the faces and voices of an already crowded world. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, this kind of pattern recognition is essential uh, for survival. If you're stumbling about in the African savanna and you hear something in the bush, well, you got a choice to make, right? I mean, you can, one, assume that it's a predator and then sort of take appropriate action, or two, you can assume that it's just the wind and you can ignore it. Now, Shermer says that if you choose to believe it's a predator, but it turns out to be the wind, well, I mean, you haven't really lost much except a little adrenaline. On the other hand, if you choose to believe it's the wind and it turns out to be a tiger or a lion, well, your genes have to get out of the gene pool. So consequently, humans have developed this sort of keen ability to find patterns everywhere since the cost of being wrong about danger is just too high. Now, unfortunately, while this kind of super-tuned threat detection system is helpful for survival at, uh, in an environment where the chances of being eaten are genuinely great, it doesn't serve us nearly so well when the, most of the threats we face day-to-day -day aren't, aren't real aggression, but passive aggression. <laughs> when the threat that will be eaten uh, isn't there, but that the real threat that we perceive is that the yogurt we left in the fridge for our afternoon break will be eaten by Janice, who apparently finds it impossible to leave her hands off of everybody else's stuff. Now, in modern life, we're much more prone to pattern recognition that ensures not our safety anymore, but our comfort level. I, I take it that's why most of us are so ill-disposed to change. Because change sort of represents a, a break in the pattern, and therefore it represents a potential threat. Now, this threat may not be to my safety, but it may be to my sense that the world is a hospitable place and basically designed to provide me with a disruption-free existence. Now, Jesus, the man who graduated from Nazareth High back in the day, bumps into this problem himself with pattern recognition in our text this morning. Now, if you recall from last week, Jesus has been getting accosted by the big religious muckety-mucks who are uptight about some of the ritual hygiene practices that his disciples follow, or in this case, don't follow, uh, specifically hand-washing ritual. And Jesus makes the case that the thing that's really dirty and therefore needs cleaning is on the, isn't on the outside of the body, but it's on the inside. Moreover, he argues that Treating our personal customs as divine mandates can lead people who are already at the top of the heap to treat those at the bottom of the heap like gate crashers. In other words, religious customs that at one time had been a way of sort of throwing open the doors to make life easier for everyone to practice their faith, you could do it at home, right? You didn't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple. Those mechanisms 
have come to be the very thing by which the doors get slammed shut again, often keeping out the people who most need to get inside. But as I say, <clears throat> after this run-in with the Pharisees, Jesus is apparently disgusted, uh, excuse me, disgusted enough that he needs kind of a break. And, and, and not just a short little breather either, because according to our text today, Jesus hit the road and he didn't stop until he got to Tyre. Now, Tyre, as we say in the mountains, is a fur piece from where Jesus had been in the region of Galilee. It was a fairly ambitious road trip. Now we pick up our text for this morning as Jesus is approached by a Gentile woman who's identified as a Syrophoenician, and her daughter is stricken by an unclean spirit. Now the woman falls on, uh, uh, falls on the ground and asks Jesus to cast out this spirit. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, I don't know how you read it, but it seems pretty clear that he insults her by sort of indirectly calling her and her daughter dogs. Of course, she responds, I think rather snappily, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. <laughs> wow. Boom. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? And Jesus is impressed enough with her answer that he heals the woman's daughter. Now, there are any number of explanations that have been given to explain Jesus' motivation for calling this woman and her daughter um, dogs. I mean, one question that is raised uh, in order to interpret this passage is Jesus just sort of using some kind of common idiomatic reference to the fact that they're Gentiles? Like all Gentiles are dogs? But see, I mean, that's a problem, if that's true, for a couple of reasons. One, look, a slur is still a slur whether it's common enough that everybody says it. And two, drawing attention to Gentiles as unclean this way seems especially odd since we've just gotten a huge lecture from Jesus on purity and on our own proclivities for using purity as a way of keeping other people out. Are they dogs because Syria and Phoenicia have historically been aggressive toward Israel? Are they dogs because Tyre, according to the prophet Amos, had at one time sold the children of Israel as slaves? Now, we don't know why Jesus uses an epithet like dog when referring to the woman and her daughter, but whatever his motivation, this whole episode strikes a kind of discordant tone, at least in my ears. I mean, it doesn't sound like the Jesus who always seems to stand at the ready to offer healing to everyone who asks. The problem, as Matt Skinner has pointed out, is that this text presents us with some choices. And they're choices that we ultimately have to make in trying to understand what the text is getting at. And that is, is Jesus 
making this woman pass some kind of test by having her answer a riddle? Or does this woman win an argument with Jesus? Now, if you choose to interpret this as Jesus testing the woman, but you first have to account for the fact that this is the only place that Jesus makes somebody jump through rhetorical hoops in order to be healed, right? I mean, it, it may help us feel a little bit better about Jesus. At least he's not a bigot. But not much, since it makes Jesus look like he wants the woman to approach him with, you know, the requisite humility. And if she doesn't, he's prepared to provide her with all the humility she needs by making her own the whole dog slur before healing her and her daughter. And the second option, at first blush, seems even worse than that, though. And that is, is Jesus, for reasons known only to him, does he have no intention of casting the demon out until the woman persuades him otherwise? Now, I understand why this might be off-putting as a line of interpretation, since it, it sort of requires that a woman help uh, Jesus think through something about the very reign of God that he's busy proclaiming. I mean, we sort of like to, our Jesus straight up, no mixers, no doubt, no sweat, no fear, no sadness, no anger. And though I suspect we'd be reluctant to say so in public, we kind of like the idea of a purely divine Jesus who just sort of knows everything. Einstein's theory of relativity, life-saving vaccines, or what the Supreme Court was thinking when it chose to remain silent on the Texas abortion law that makes citizens into bounty hunters. I mean, it would be nice to think that Jesus sort of, as he's walking around Palestine, has all of the, those things sort of bumping around in his head. But, I mean, let's be honest about the fact that that kind of sort of know-everything Jesus doesn't leave much room for a human Jesus, the, the, the one who who had acne and bad breath and a fear of asking a date to the senior prom. In other words, we, we often find it difficult to conceive of Jesus as, as like us, except perhaps in the most superficial ways. But consider with me for a moment the, the, the possibility that Jesus, the one that Mark wants us to learn about in this story, is still sort of busy working through just how expansive is this welcome in the reign of God that he's announcing. I mean, what if it takes a woman with a sick daughter to help Jesus catch a glimpse of what he's just announced in his confrontation with the Pharisees a few verses ago? Uh, 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 of the, the implications of purity laws and God's desire to continue receiving people whether or not they've gotten the USDA stamp of approval from the religious big shots. So what does that do to your faith? I mean, what if the woman with a sick daughter isn't just a clever, quick wit with a great ability to turn a phrase? What if... What if this passage isn't just about 
forcing Jesus to admire her wit. What, 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 if, what if she's God's messenger to Jesus about just how huge this whole enterprise is that Jesus is busy unwrapping for the world? I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I'll tell you how I feel about it. I, I mean, I kind of like, I, I love the idea that the Jesus I've spent my whole life learning how to follow is big enough to allow himself to be stretched by a Gentile woman with a sick kid. About the very last person in the whole world that Jesus should be taking religious instruction from. I mean, I love this idea that Jesus is big enough to listen for the voice of God even in the most unlikely places. Not in the institutions, busy authorizing and credentialing everything, making sure that meets all the government standards for cage-free, free-range faith. I mean, I love the fact that Paul announces in his letter to the Galatians that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. That this reality gets played out in real life in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, right before our very eyes. But you know what I love even more is that this might mean something extra special for us. I mean, think about it. Think about the church, uh, the, the folks who come to church on a Sunday morning uh, when we're meeting in person, for example. I mean, think about all the stuff that they have to do just to get out of bed and consider the fact that they might want to go to church, some of them for the very first time ever. I mean, think about how difficult that is. I mean, they have to sort of screw up their courage to walk through the strange and intimidating doors, and then they, they come and they sit down in the midst of a room full of people that they don't really know, and they risk looking foolish if they don't know when to stand or when to sit, having to talk to people they don't know about. And maybe having to be in the middle of a situation where they're called upon to share things they don't want to share. Now, I mean, I'll just tell you. <laughs> uh, I'm shy. I'm an introvert. And I have nightmares that look exactly like what I just described. But, but, but somehow, these folks muster up whatever it is they need to muster up to come looking for Jesus or community or just a little reassurance in a world that feels perilously close to falling apart. We love having new people come worship with us, but let's be honest, anything new is a break in the pattern that we're used to, isn't it? And it's easy to, re to, to, to react to any new change in the pattern as, as a threat. But here's what I want to propose. I believe this Syrophoenician woman challenges us to encounter newness and change, not as a threat, but as God trying to break in among us and stretch our understanding of how big this welcome is that we're supposed to be giving. I mean, how expansive is the vision of just who God wants to offer hospitality to? So here's what I think. 
I think we ought to be asking ourselves what kinds of gifts God is sending us in the people who are courageous enough to seek us out to see if there's anything to this whole Jesus thing. Because sometimes God shows up looking like the very people that we've spent a lot of our lives avoiding. Right? I mean, sometimes God shows up as broken and, and, and scarred, one who's left the bed of a sick child searching for some word of healing, or if not healing, then for understanding, for, for, for somebody to, to look in the eye just to prove that this isn't just some terrible nightmare. I mean, sometimes God is embarrassed with kids who have so much energy that they can't keep still, and they have to move their bodies as a kind of embodied prayer of praise and joy. Sometimes God shuffles in old and afraid that tomorrow holds only more pain and less relief, a new day to remember what being forgotten feels like. Sometimes God shows up queer, having been estranged from God's own house by God's own people for so many years now. But hopeful that some little bit of the compassion of the Jesus they learned about as children still exists somewhere among the people who claim to follow him. I mean, sometimes God walks down the aisle to take a seat in the pew having lost a job and not knowing how to make it through another week looking for a way to make rent and buy mom's insulin that doesn't lead to despair. And sometimes... God enters with the world on a string and a song in the heart and everything's great and cares seem like distant and unfamiliar propositions. See, but God shows up regularly in the people who come in search of a meal, or if not a meal, then just perhaps a crumb. I mean, we gather around a table and God comes to us again and meets us in the gift of the broken bread and the poured wine. As David Loses said, let's face it, hospitality for most of us means being patient and polite while we wait for newcomers to become more like us. <laughs> but what if hospitality isn't just us waiting for people to change to become more like us? What if hospitality is learning to see people as God's gift to stretch us to become more like Jesus? If it falls from the table of God and we don't block anybody from it but instead welcome everyone to gather around it perhaps even a few crumbs might be just enough. That that's a pattern I'd love to learn to recognize. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes 
retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.